if in the same week I get an email and somebody's like, you're a leftist shill, and somebody else is like, you're a right-wing hack, I will cut and paste the emails into the same string, email both of them, say, could you two talk this over and get back to me so that I don't have to respond to both of you? <laughs> and I, I'll do this probably every three months. I've done this for years. I've never had anybody get back to me, like not once. And I'm just hoping, like in my mind, at one point, somebody on the right and on the left actually did talk to each other about their mutual hatred of me, <laughs> and maybe they made like a deep connection. Right. That's my hope. That's my fantasy. <laughs> That was Kyle Clark, reporter and anchor on Denver Channel 9, KUSA-TV, the local NBC affiliate, talking about how journalists are universally adored, <laughs> or not for the services they provide the community. Welcome to the Colorado Oil and Gas Association podcast, also called What Turns You On, presented by CH2M. I'm Steve Ludwig, your host. And I'm Casey Henderson, your co-host. Now, this podcast covers a lot of territory from oil and gas, how the media actually functions, microbrews, Kyle's own favorite podcasts, and how social media is changing the landscape of news reporting in the 21st century. We would like to thank CH2M for sponsoring this podcast. Headquartered here in Colorado, CH2M helps the oil and gas industry with upstream, midstream, and downstream work across a project life cycle. This includes engineering, project management, siting, licensing, permitting, and water and wastewater management. For more information, you can check out ch2m.com. Okay, Casey, with that out of the way, on to the podcast! So uh, with us today is Kyle Clark from Nine News. Welcome, Kyle. My pleasure. So for those folks that are not in the Denver metro area that are listening to our podcast, uh, just give us a little bit of rundown of what nine news is we are in the hollowed halls of kusa uh it's a legacy tv station in denver colorado uh serves people in three different states but primarily the denver metro area and uh one of the great television stations in america which i have nothing to do with i just got here eight years ago but for decades this place has been a powerhouse great photojournalism great storytelling great investigative reporting you're an nbc affiliate yes mm -hmm. And then what's your role here for, again, people that might not see your smiling teeth on TV? Sure. Uh, teeth are important. It's TV. Uh, I anchor the <laughs> evening shows at 6, 9, and 10 o'clock. I'm also a political reporter here. I do some investigative reporting, and then also I do some feature storytelling and long-form stuff, documentary-type stuff. Nice. So one of the things that I think a lot of people don't reflect on as media consumers is trying to understand sort of the role of a TV station uh, as far as journalism is concerned. So what what do you consider news? How do you decide what is, what is newsworthy and what is not? You know, I think if you were to ask 100 people in the newsroom, you'd get 100 different answers to that question. For me, news is what is getting attention and what should be getting attention. Those are the two qualifiers. And that is a very democratized view of news. Uh, and that's, that's my view of the landscape now, taking into account both traditional mainstream platforms and social media and digital outlets and that type of thing. It's all about attention. Okay. So Kim Kardashian's newsworthy because she's got attention. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> got it. So how, how, who makes the final call on, like, we're going to go with this today or not? Is that you? Is that a group of people? Um, it's a group of people. Mm -hmm. It's a group of people here uh, in terms of producers and reporters and and anchors who at Nine News, we have more kind of a, a, a de facto um, editor type role here. But the fact is, the community will often decide what's news 
and then we are reacting to that because now we're living in this in this era where news is is 360 and it goes from us to people and from people to us and back and forth in real time so a lot of times it's the community itself that decides that something is news that's a perfect segue in the 21st century how does tv differ from print journalism you know i think it differs less and less every day i think we're just in the business of journalism and storytelling uh the differentiators historically have been the platforms on which we disseminate our work but now they're on our platform for the most part we're on that their platform and and we're on shared platforms in terms of of digital and and social media so i think that the lines are blurred more so than ever before but print will go more into policy stuff. Than, I mean, policy is not really set up for television news generally. So they, they they'll do more, more city form. council and, you know, state legislative stuff, don't you think, than, than TV or radio? Well, radio doesn't really count anymore, I guess. Well, I, I think it's all about resource allocation. Mm-hmm. And at one time, I think print journalism was in the business of covering City Hall because it was the responsible thing to do and everybody was doing it. And now all of a sudden they have City Hall as an almost exclusive beat five days a week, you know, unless there's something huge happening. And then you'll see TV reporters and web reporters and that type of thing show up down there. And that's just a matter of where the industry is now with with fewer bodies Mm -hmm. out there. But still, TV has a special thing. What do you think it does better than perhaps other platforms might? It connects people. Mm -hmm. It it connects people. It connects people one-to-one. It connects people one-to-many. You can have a very intimate connection with somebody through television because you're talking to them and they're looking at you. And now crazily we're in a world where we can be looking at them while they're talking to us in some formats and that's really cool but it's the ability to make that personal connection to tell a story uh sometimes more heart than head you always want the Mm -hmm. head there too but more heart than head sometimes and then the ability to really transport people to a place where they aren't to really take them there great print writing can do that too but tv can do it with such facility that uh, it's really terrific you have the challenge of boiling down really complex subjects into just a minute or two for on-air broadcast can you walk us through that how do you go about that sure i think it starts with an understanding of the story at a level to which it is not going to be discussed on television. If all I have is a surface level understanding of something, I probably am going to put together a really poor surface level explainer for somebody. But if I have some depth of knowledge about something, then I can pick and choose what's most important for people to understand and how do we how do we layer up their knowledge? How do we build that strata? Does 80% of our audience need a base level on this story, or is there enough understanding now that we can add that second layer of analysis or depth? Hmm. Very interesting. I remember, so I started my career in radio and TV, and uh, I had to cover a court case once, and I didn't know anything about it, and we had to do what they call a live shot. Um, They handed me the file, and they said, you're on in 45 minutes. Good luck with that. Go, Mm -hmm. kid, right? So does that still happen? Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, breaking news still happens. Late assignments still happen. Uh, the hope is that all of us who work in the newsroom are news junkies. Mm-hmm. We're consumers. So the hope is that we come to everything with that base level understanding, and we come to a number of things with some depth. And then 
as you well know, our job is to develop instant expertise. Mm-hmm. How fast can you become a, a, a pseudo expert, mm-hmm. not in a false sense, but in terms of, of being able to, to give people some level of understanding and how mm-hmm. quickly can you come to that? Right. And for the love of God, don't ask me more than three questions because that's all I've got. That's right all. Here. I got nothing more for you. <laughs> So this is the Koga podcast for the Colorado oil and gas industry, of course. How do you see the oil and gas industry interacting with mainstream media? Do they do a good job of it? Do they do a poor job of it? Um, What's your experience been since, you know, you've been in the news business for quite a while, your entire professional career? Well, of course, we're in a news station where the advertising and sales department is on the second floor and the news department's on the first floor, and that's for a reason, so that we don't talk to each other or influence each other's decisions. But I'd be lying if I said that if I didn't say that the number one way in which the energy industry interacts with Nine News is buying a mess load of ads to tell us how much the energy industry loves trees and bunnies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the interaction that we see. I mean, because your advertising presence is so large compared to the amount of time that's spent actually covering energy issues mm-hmm. in Colorado. So how about the time they do interact with the newsroom? Mm-hmm. Do they do that well? they do it poorly? I, I think generally speaking, they, they do it pretty well. On an industry-wide scale, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Dan Haley has a great uh, relationship with reporters. And he's, uh, the, Tisha pres- had, he's the president of COGA. Yep, yep and past president uh, mm-hmm. Tisha Schuler also had uh, a good open relationship uh, with people. Uh, you know, uh, Doug Flanders is a little pokey, but, you know, we, we get along with him okay. <laughs> Doug, Doug, Fl- <laughs> Doug Flanders is the – what's your title, Doug? And policy and external affairs, external affairs, and he sits and watches all these podcasts to make sure, you know, he's not going to lose a job. I guess, <laughs> yeah. So he's here in the room. No, more, more often than not, uh, positive relationships. Then once you get down to a company by company basis, I think some companies just have different attitudes about the media than others. Some are are interested in having a positive relationship. Some have decided that they don't need to have a positive relationship or any relationship whatsoever, and that's just a company-by-company company prerogative. But that's that's not specific to the energy industry. That's every business. Right. So how do you – so fracking is incredibly complicated, and it's really emotionally hot. So how, how do you – like, how do you balance uh, that when people are, like, really passionate on both sides? How – you know, as a, as a reporter, as an anchor, as you're going through that, it's like, wow, this is a really delicate issue. How do we tackle this appropriately? You know, I think part of the challenge is the the people who dislike fracking have tried to turn the term itself into something that's pejorative. Um, it's a it's a process. Uh, it's an industrial scientific process, whatever. It's just a thing, mm-hmm. and we can talk about the thing. If people want to get into their ideas about uh, whether it's a force for good or a force for evil, then we can have that conversation. But when we're trying to explain something that is a thing, we just need to stick to the facts of what it is and what it isn't. Do you ever encounter a, a shoot the messenger kind of mentality? I, I read. Uh, a... I'm riddled with holes. <laughs> Because I follow you on Twitter, and um, you made a comment saying people will attack you from the right or the left, saying, oh, you clearly have a, a bias as a news station. And you made the comment, well, I wish you two would get together and read the same stuff and then come back with a consensus. I will bulk email people. If in the same week I get an email and somebody's like, you're a leftist shill, and somebody else is like, you're a right-wing hack, I will cut and paste the emails into the same string, email both of them, say, could you two talk this over and get back to me so that I don't have to respond to both of you? (laughs) And I'll do this probably every three months. I've done this for years. I've never had anybody get back to me, like not once. And I'm just hoping, like in my mind, 
at one point, somebody on the right and on the left actually did talk to each other about their mutual hatred of me, and maybe they made like a deep connection. Right. That's my hope. That's my fantasy. And then you'll be invited to their wedding. One I know day. exactly. I'd get them something. Do you ever do you ever get frustrated by soundbite policy debates in the industry? You know, I mean, we live in a soundbite culture. That's the culture that we have chosen to live in, where things are a Facebook post or a photo that shows the one clean corner of your house or, uh, you know, 140 characters. What I'm more bothered by in discourse is the conflating of opinions and feelings for fact. That bugs me a lot more than, than sound bites. And we in the, in the media have done a poor job of being gatekeepers and not letting in opinions as if they are facts or putting up a fact followed by an opinion as if they're two sides of a coin when they're very different things. And that permeates political reporting, mm-hmm. that, that permeates all kinds of different er- areas of reporting, and it drives me nuts. Can you t- actually talk a little bit about your role, I mean, in media's role as a gatekeeper and a watchdog? Well, it, we hear it, we hear that a lot. Like the me- the media's job is to be a gatekeeper, or it's the job of the news to be a watchdog. Sure, which is also conflicted with Kim Kardashian's rear end, right? So if that's popular, then they're not a gatekeeper; they're a responder. Well, Kim Kardashian's rear end, by her own admission, broke down the gate and broke the <laughs> internet. So uh, any gatekeeper standing in the way of, of, of that was was doomed to fail. No, that's the essential job of the press, which is to is to hold people in power to account. Uh, not that bastardized quote that floats around about uh, about what is it? Afflict um, the comfortable. Afflict the comfortable and comfort uh, the afflicted. Uh, come to the, yeah, that I mean that that quote was never what it was said to be. And that sets up an adversarial relationship, which I don't think is appropriate either. No, it's to hold people in power accountable because people who who have power and businesses that have power and organizations that have power have the means by which to disseminate their own message, Um, whether it's through television advertising. Uh, scintillating podcasts, uh, <laughs> Twitter accounts, uh, Facebook accounts, that kind of thing. So those are those are the folks who just deserve a careful eye. Uh, is what they're doing in private in accordance with what they're saying in public, whether they're an elected official or somebody who has essentially been elected by people's business dollars, by the dollars that people spend in our community, or by their charitable donations. Uh, uh, charities that are prominent in our community have been elected by people's donations. So you you touched on this briefly, but mainstream media has really gotten a bad rap from both sides of the political spectrum, which I think is a democracy is a bad thing, and not that it's actually happening. But why do you think that is? Why do you think mainstream media has really gotten chewed up by both sides? Well, I think... Often when I hear from people, they're upset about one story or another. And just like in any other endeavor in life, there's really successful ones and there are really unsuccessful ones. So I'm sure if you come at things from the left, you can find a lot of individual pieces or people to to dislike. And the same thing from, from the right. So if you look at it and you don't look at it holistically, of course there's reason to be mad. Another reason why the media gets a bad rap is because the media really deserve a bad rap. And... How so? Well, look at what makes up much of what we consume in terms mm-hmm. of the media. I mean, how much time have we spent here talking about Kim Kardashian's posterior? I mean, if that doesn't We earn could talk us, about Justin Bieber. <laughs> please don't. Please. I, I have limits. Um, <laughs> but 
I, podcast I, is over. I think a lot of the I think a lot of the bad rap is deserved. I think if we want people to think that we're doing a better job, a great first step would be to do a better job. How can the public or business or anybody help encourage that? So, and I I get that. Look, news is a business. You need eyeballs. To, to stay alive. Which is not an evil thing, in right. my opinion. I'm just, no. That's, I, I that's, know, but that's, some that's people so. believe that. No, that's what's so. Yeah. But you do you do react to what the public needs and wants, right? Sure. So how could the public engage in a way? Is that through Facebook? Is that through Twitter? Email? How can they encourage more thoughtful reporting, I guess is what you're saying? Or, accountability, yeah. accountability, yeah. accountability. Uh, it's, it's just like any other business. If you walked into a sandwich shop and you didn't like the way they prepared the sandwich, you'd either never go there again, or if you thought there was hope, you'd ask them to do it differently. And the same thing goes for journalists. Tell us when we're doing something right. Tell us when we're falling short. Hopefully, tell us in a constructive way so mm -hmm. we might be able to improve. Um, you know, you can only rant at the sandwich shop once, and then you're probably never going in there again. So if you're telling me that I'm a worthless hack because I messed up this story, that's probably going to be the last time that we engage. But we get a ton of really thoughtful criticism, and it's phenomenal because it helps us tailor media to the needs of the public and now it can happen in real time i sit there on the news desk at nine and ten o'clock and i look at people's real-time reaction to what we're doing and we've been able to calibrate things on the fly when it's clear you know what in this breaking news situation we're missing something we're not mm -hmm. giving people what they're looking for that's i've never heard that discussed before like that you actually respond to people that are thoughtful because we've all wanted to at one point or another fire off that angry email to somebody about something either at work or you know, personal or, or a media person, but you actually read the, like, and I think a lot of people forget that, I don't know, Kyle, you look and breathe like a human being. Well, thank you. I've practiced yeah. for many years. Right, right. <laughs> but, but people forget that, like, you're a person. I respond to everything. Yeah. At some point, I probably won't be able to uh, just due to volume reasons. I'm You're just kind becoming of so that popular. Point out. That's not what it's, I said. No, Kyle, no, it's really. People's, it's people's access to <laughs> deliver feedback to people. No, but it was a point of pride for me earlier in my career that. I responded to all comers, mm -hmm. positive, negative, in between, no matter how vitriolic, um, that I would always respond to people. And that's, that, still is my that still is my practice. If I don't respond to somebody, it's because I've forgotten to, not because I didn't intend to. Mm -hmm. Because my thought is, if you care enough to reach out, then I ought to be able to carve out enough time in my day to thoughtfully respond to you. How has your job in journalism as a whole changed with the rise of social media because you've become in, a you, lot more fun yeah you've been in the why so because uh, it's because it's real time it's the ability to have a conversation um uh it's imagine if your sole means of communication was writing letters to people writing letters is great but that's a one-way conversation and then you wait and then you wait and maybe you hear back from them maybe you don't and now social media it's a phone call and now it's a real-time conversation back and forth between people. And it's absolutely tremendous because it's just it's a new mode of communication, and it allows us to do our jobs better. We have more resources thanks to social media. We have more feedback thanks to social media. Errors that would have taken 24 hours to correct sometimes take 60 seconds. If I mispronounce a place name on television, I will know within seconds. And often, if there's a soundbite in the middle of the story and the soundbite is 15 seconds long, it takes me roughly five seconds to check my social media feeds out there on the desk. I can see it and correct it after the 15-second soundbite. So we never even get out of that story before people realize, whoops, I made an error. I'm sorry about that. 
Outside of the feedback loop, do you ever vet stories from, I guess, what we call citizen journalists? Sure. Well, I mean, anybody out there is a citizen journalist, I guess, you know, if anybody who's gathering information about their world. And we solicit that actively because people know their communities, they're in tune with their communities. And we're constantly vetting suggestions uh, of, of stories to cover. When we talk about citizen journalism, to me, the line is hazy between, say, a news tip. Hey, can you check out this that's going on in my neighborhood? And then the news tip that comes in and says, I've got it all figured out. So-and-so politician is on the take from such-and-such a company because I saw this happen. Now cover this story, Nine News. Okay, it's not a, it's not a story yet. It might be uh, if we can get in there and verify what you're saying and this and that. But people's suppositions are not stories and they're not journalism, but they're very much appreciated because they lead us down the road to check these things out. And sometimes just as valuable or even more valuable than something that checks out is the ability to debunk something that's reached some level of virality. Oh, that's interesting. And that, to me, is a huge, huge emerging role for us with the rise mm -hmm. of social and digital media because people in the community will decide that something's a story. They will make it a story on their own. They don't need us, but they sure could use us in the end to say, hey, that thing that you're passing around on Facebook is total and utter garbage. I don't want you to embarrass yourself. I don't want you to misinform your neighbors or this or that. I can do you a solid by pointing you to real substantiated fact. Do you have a, something in mind? There's a ton of them. I mean, I'm anything, telling you there's a ton. Anything come off the top of your head? You know, I don't know if anything jumps at me mm -hmm. right off right off the top of my head. I mean, I've been doing a lot of political reporting lately, so it there's no There's no it's need to fact check <laughs> in political reporting. One of, one of the things that's just been driving me up a wall lately is uh, Donald Trump talking about the protesters at, at his events uh, violating his free speech. Um, you can use any number of adjectives to describe the protesters at, at his events and their methodologies and so forth, but they most certainly are not violating his free speech uh, as it stands as a right in the Constitution because that protects people from government action. And the only known uh, adjudication that I'm aware of in which free speech rights have applied to the interference by private people is a situation where speakers have been removed from the stage against their will by the state, by the police, to protect them from protesters, kind of like a mob rule kind mm -hmm. of thing, which I believe for all of the ruckus at Trump events, that has actually never happened. The only times that he's canceled events, it was because he wanted to as opposed to police. So I just wish that he would say different things and that his supporters would say different things, like the protesters are being rude, they're interrupting the democratic process, they shouldn't do things like this and then have that debate but as soon as we get into my rights the problem with rights is that they're actually very specifically enumerated it, it's not a matter of i feel this is my right so no, no, i don't know I, if that I, counts I, as, I, as fact checking i, I think, don't know i think feelings are the new rights our feelings are the new rights well let, let's talk a little bit about free speech or feelings or rights as a reporter i'm not sure how i feel about this as a journalist as a reporter in the 21st century are you allowed, encouraged to have and express your informed opinions, or should journalists really remain impartial and subjective when delivering the news? Yeah, Kyle. I, <laughs> how about that, huh? <laughs> huh? Um, I would say this. I think that there is a role for both, and I think the key is transparency with the audience. What type of journalist are you? Where are your guardrails? Um, we don't need the Associated Press tomorrow 
uh, interspersing its news alerts with opinions of people who work at the Associated Press. Why? Because that's not the standard that they are upholding. Is there a role for, say, your friendly local news anchor slash political reporter to provide analysis, to go beyond fact and to say, we know these things. Now let me tell you why they're happening or what that means more more broadly speaking. So analysis is separate from opinion. Correct. But they're cousins. And let me give you an example. Recently, uh, I did a commentary piece that we offered up on social media on 420 Mm -hmm. in which I posed the question. 420, just for those that aren't in the marijuana culture is the big marijuana day. Oh, you do have a broad audience, don't you? Okay, all right. Um, So I offered up what we labeled as commentary, Mm -hmm. which was me posing the question, at what point will cannabis culture in Colorado evolve beyond 420, which at this point is a large public smoke-in illegally at Civic Center Park. Public consumption in Colorado is illegal. Uh, Previously, it was a show of defiance against uh, government control over cannabis and that kind of thing. So my question was, after Prohibition, there were drunken crowds in the streets of Denver on a nightly basis. There are now drunken crowds in Denver on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights, mainly in Lodo. But it has contracted, and in the last two decades— a beer culture has grown up in Colorado that's about more than the flouting of the law and public consumption and public intoxication. It's decided to be more things. And there are elements of that in cannabis culture, really rich elements of it in Colorado in terms of of cannabis and commerce and cannabis and food and cannabis and recreation. And I pose the question of at what point down the line will cannabis culture evolve? I bet you it'll happen faster in alcohol. I'm sure it'll happen faster in alcohol. But that included fact, analysis, and then my opinion, which was it could use an evolution. It would be better served by evolving faster rather than slower. Um, but it was clearly labeled as such, and people knew where it was coming from. Mm-hmm. Well, there you have it. Is there that the first cannabis it. mention on the Koga podcast? It, it is. is. We've mentioned Battlestar Galactica a few times because of fracking, of course. I wouldn't think they'd go in that order, but <laughs> yes. okay. Well, yeah. Walking Dead. Walking Dead. Yeah. Movies in general. We can nerd out too. All right. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned the beer culture. You're a big home brewer, right? I am. Well, I'm not a big home brewer. I'm a bad home brewer. But <laughs> what I lack in skill, I make up for in enthusiasm. Um, so I am an enthusiastic home brewer, and I'm just a big lover of Colorado's craft beer scene, America's craft beer scene. Actually, um, travel the country somewhat frequently, always trying to take in like what beer culture looks like in different cities. It but looks blurry after a few. After after a few, yeah, you want to get that initial assessment in mm-hmm. and try to uh, lock that away to, to memory. So bringing this back, uh, this has been really a fascinating conversation. If there was one thing you'd want people to know about the television news business specifically that they don't know, what would that be? I would encourage them to stop thinking about it as the television news business because we are no longer thinking about it as the television news business. It is simply the news business. Okay. And if people are not interested in TV news, I would bet you they're still interested in news, and we still want to be having a conversation with them about when and where they want their news, how we can better serve them, because people's interest in information is insatiable. It's insatiable. Um, it's just platform desires are changing. So that's what you'd want them to know? That's what I want them to know. I'd want them to stay engaged. I mean, just because, you know, just because perhaps 
they listen to podcasts instead of watching television, which, by the way, that's how I get most of my news, information, culture, um, that, you know, they should stay engaged with us all over the place. So you mentioned you listen to, you get a lot of news and uh, entertainment you mentioned from podcasts. What what are you listening to and why? So the why. Besides what turns you on, the Koga podcast. Yes. We know that, of course. Now in my drop down mm-hmm. playlist. Uh, so the why is because I can listen to podcasts while doing nearly everything else with the exception of watching television or talking on the phone to somebody. Um, so I'm looking for news for entertainment all over the place. So I just I pulled up my feed here. So it's in alphabetical order, roughly. Uh, 99% Invisible, great podcast about architecture in our everyday lives. Just a tremendous podcast. Roman Mars out of San Francisco does that. Colorado Matters, that's Colorado NPR. Uh, Ryan Warner's show, he's the best interviewer in town. No offense to y'all. Um, <laughs> but he is tremendous. His daily podcast is great. They ask Gary V show, Gary Vaynerchuk, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, high energy, lots of F words, very entertaining. Uh, criminal telling stories about real crime. Um, Decode DC, that's inside Washington. What's your geek? Come on, give us a geeky one. What's a geeky Do you one? Have like beer, home You think there hasn't been geek in that list so far? Really. Were you not listening? No. Uh, to There's be honest, good geeky stuff in there. All right. I, I don't have an all-the-time beer podcast because mm-hmm. I'm so immersed in it the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some stuff What's your favorite news one, then? You mentioned Ryan Warner. But... His, is, his is very good. Mm-hmm. To the best of our knowledge, Wisconsin Public Radio does a great podcast. It's really quirky, and it's very old-school NPR. You can picture people in sweaters. Uh, in, in a studio doing it, but it's it's really really interesting. And uh, and Mike Pesca's the gist from Slate. He is hysterical. Um, it's as if like my brain got bigger and smarter, and then leapt out of its out of my head and got a podcast. Like his brain is what I want my brain to be when it grows up. That's quite an endorsement. It's a good podcast. So Casey, do you want to ask Kyle about his how people can stalk him? Yes. How can <laughs> How can people get in touch with you? Where should they follow you? What websites? Twitter feed? Uh, Twitter at Kyle Clark. Uh, Facebook, uh, Kyle Clark. Uh, I have two accounts on there. One is for my family and friends. And then the other one, I'm wearing uh, my grandfather's sport coat from 1970 and pointing obnoxiously on our new set. That's the one that you want to follow. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's my public Facebook account. And I do respond to people on there, too. I try to get back to every single person who wants to chat. Great. Well, thank. this was very informative. Thank, thank you, you very for much for your time. Us. Thanks for the invite. been listening to What Turns You On, the Koga podcast presented by CH2M. CH2M helps the oil and gas industry with upstream, midstream, and downstream work across the project lifecycle. This includes engineering, project management, siting licensing permitting, and water and wastewater management. For more information, check out ch2m.com. For more podcasts and to learn more about the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, go to koga.org.